Good morning again. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38 will be our scripture reading for this morning, Acts chapter 20, uh, 13 to 38. And uh, before we read that together, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you because we we do need to be shepherded by Jesus, and uh, we know that the the good shepherd uses his word to care for his flock, and so we come to hear from your word. Uh, We come to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Uh, We pray that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand with our minds and believe with our hearts that we would come to know Jesus better, come to trust him more fully, come to delight in him with our whole selves. Uh, Pour out your spirit this morning to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 13. This is uh, in the middle of the story as Paul is going along his missionary journey. And this is God's word. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, And how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Jesus saw a leadership vacuum in his day. And he saw that as one of the bigger crises of his day. Uh, by leadership vacuum, I just mean that, that there was an absence. When there's an absence of leadership, when leadership is needed. Or at least an absence of good leadership. And, and Jesus saw a leadership vacuum as one of the biggest crises of his day. And it may sound odd to say that. Uh, you, you may be thinking, leadership vacuum? Really? Uh, you know, what about, you know, sin? <laughs> uh, well, well, this is one of the results of sin. And we see it throughout Scripture, right? It wouldn't be the first time that this was one of the major problems facing the people of God. Uh, just re remember the book of Judges. Do you remember, remember the last verse? It ends with these famous words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was a leadership crisis in Jeremiah's day as well. Jeremiah 23.1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Now Jesus came as the good shepherd to, to lay down his life for the sheep. And yet his assessment of leadership in his day was not much better. If anything, it was worse. Uh, think about what Jesus said of the religious leaders in his day in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to the, the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Or those, uh, of those same Pharisees, Jesus also said in Matthew 15, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. See, there you have Jesus' assessment of leadership in his day, the blind leading the blind. Which explains maybe Jesus' response uh, once when he saw the crowds and we're told in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, like, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. <clears throat> I wonder what Jesus would say about church leadership today. How are we doing? It's a scary question to me uh, for obvious reasons. But as soon as we begin to ask that question, as soon as we begin to assess leadership in the church today, we run into a problem. And the problem is, what is the criteria for good leadership in the church? 
Uh, what, are the, what are church leaders to do? What is our role? How do we evaluate church leaders? Well, we actually get a bit of a picture of that in Acts chapter 20. The second half of Acts 20 is known as Paul's farewell speech. Uh, Paul has spent years planting churches in and around Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and Greece. And he's gone back and visited those churches multiple times to build them up, to strengthen them, to encourage them. But that stage of Paul's life is coming to an end, and he knows it. And he's wrapping up one phase of life. He's, he's moving on to the next. And so Paul is passing the baton of church leadership off to the elders as he calls them pastorally to watch over the flock. And, and this is an important moment in the book of Acts. As, as we've said before, Acts is a book of transitions. Uh, it, it moves from Jerusalem to Rome, from Jew to Gentile, and, and one of the more significant transitions, there are others, but, but one of the more significant ones is about leadership. The book of Acts begins with the, the, the apostles leading the church, and it ends with elders taking over to care for the church of God. Here in Acts 20, Paul is, is passing the torch or passing the baton. He hands over the, the care of the Ephesian church to elders, which I think within the, the context of the book of Acts is he's symbolically passing on the care of the apostolic church, the church led by the apostles, over to the care of elders. Right? The apostles uh, were limited. There were few of them, and they were dying out, uh, but the elders were, were an ongoing office in the church. And so Paul's passing on leadership uh, to this new office in the church. Yeah, our passage, in some ways, is, is fairly straightforward, right? After arriving in Miletus, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to him in verses 13 to 17. Uh, he then describes his own ministry, what he did among the Ephesians in verses 18 to 27. He, he proceeds to charge the elders, verses 28 to 31. He, he commends them to the grace of God in verse 32 before giving his final exhortation. And then they pray together and they give tearful goodbyes. And throughout, though, Paul, what Paul is doing is he's, he's setting up the elders by way of example and exhortation to care for the church. And so our question this morning is going to be, how are they to do that? Uh, how are the elders to care for the church of God? That's Paul's charge to them. Uh, you might wonder what this has to do with you, uh, if you're not, especially if you're not an elder. <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe you're a student just trying to get through another semester and you're wondering, okay, why do I care uh, what the work of the elders is? Um, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom just trying to deal with a bunch of crazy kids. Uh, maybe you're a business person just trying to pursue Jesus while being faithful in your workplace and you're wondering, okay, what does it matter uh, what the role of church leaders is? I, I, just, I just need to live my life. And in some sense, okay, this sermon is for leaders in the church. In fact, if, if uh, as I was thinking about this sermon and, and thinking about this text, I was thinking, this is for me. <laughs> this is the sermon for me. This is what I need to hear. Uh, specifically for elders and pastors. Of course, there are other kinds of leaders in the church. But it's specifically for elders and pastors. It's for those who are elders, those who might be elders one day, those who feel called to become elders in the church. And yet, maybe that's not you. So what does it have to do with you? Uh, there, there actually, I had a list of, of answers to that question, but I'm not going to go through that whole list. I want to emphasize uh, just one thing, and that is part of the way Jesus 
the good shepherd cares for his sheep is through under-shepherds, right? God's grace uh, comes to us through means. And uh, it, it comes through things like the means of grace, the word and sacraments and prayer. God's grace comes to us through other people, right? Through a word of encouragement, uh, through a friend sharing the gospel with us. And God's grace comes through shepherds. Um, that, that certainly doesn't mean we always get it right. We don't. Um, just that Jesus' normal means of shepherding his sheep, and so one of the ways that Jesus pours out his grace on his people is through appointing shepherds to care for his sheep, to steward the church. I feel like I've been talking about this a lot recently uh, for a couple reasons. One, because we're going through the process right now of, of training uh, people who have been nominated to become elders. Uh, another reason is because the book of Acts keeps coming back to this. Elders keep popping up here and there. Uh, but because it keeps coming up in Scripture, we're, we're going to keep talking about it. And so uh, you, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, you find an outline for this morning. We're going to be asking the question, what is the, the pastor uh, or elder's role? And from this text, we see six things. Uh, the pastor is to teach the gospel, to guard the flock, to face opposition, to love the church, to answer to God, and to rest in the Word. Uh, there is more that church leaders are to do than that, uh, but there's certainly not less. So what is the pastor, what is the elder's role? Number one, uh, the pastor is to teach the gospel. Uh, I start with this uh, both because it's the most important thing and because it's so easily lost and because Paul emphasizes it so much. The pastor's role is not as a, as a CEO or a marketing director or a political activist or whatever else we might think of, uh, of pastors in the church today. No, the pastor is, is fundamentally a teacher. The pastor leads first and foremost by teaching. Go back to Jesus. Uh, how did Jesus lead the sheep? Think about that, that passage in Matthew we read earlier. There's a similar passage in Mark chapter 6. It says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, okay, leaderless. And how does Jesus address this leaderless people? The verse goes on in Mark, and he began to teach them many things. Same, of course, is true with Paul. Uh, look at verses 20 to 21. Uh, notice all the different verbs that are there, right? Paul declared all that was profitable. Paul taught in public and private. Paul testified to both Jews and Greeks. Verse 25, Paul proclaimed the kingdom. Verse 27, Paul declared the whole counsel of God. Uh, to be sure, uh, there is something unique about Paul's calling, Paul's apostolic mission, right, that he mentions in verse 25, the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that there was something unique about that. As with the 12, Paul was called to testify to what he saw. Like, and at the same time a little bit unlike them, Paul saw the risen Christ. And Paul testified to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as an eyewitness, right? The verb to testify when used of testifying to Christ in the New Testament is reserved uh, for those who offer eyewitness testimony. But it's clear that Paul means for his testimony, his eyewitness testimony, to be a kind of example for future church leaders. Uh, we, we see that in 2 Timothy where Paul speaks to uh, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy, a pastor at least of the church of Ephesus, 
And in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, preachers today don't offer eyewitness testimony. Jesus did not appear to me in my study upstairs, right? I'm not proclaiming to you what I saw. But we can recount the apostolic testimony. We can tell people that Jesus did rise from the dead, and we can do that on the authority of the eyewitness testimony already given by the likes of Paul and others recorded for us in the New Testament. And so when you're, when you're looking for church leaders, right, first and foremost, you're looking for men who are passionate about the Word, who have a desire to understand it for themselves and to help others do the same, right, to teach it, to proclaim it. And yet it's not just the Word generically, it is the gospel specifically. You know, we could take 20 minutes or more just to break down Paul's teaching here and all the different elements of it. It was profitable and therefore practical, verse 20. He taught everything to everyone, everywhere he went, verse 20 to 21. But most important, the most important thing to see is that everywhere Paul went, to everyone he spoke, Paul taught about Jesus and Jesus' gospel and Jesus' grace. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And later he said to that, that same church, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. See, the focus of Paul's every message was not Scripture generically, but Jesus specifically. And that's important to say, right, because you know it is possible to have a Bible teaching ministry and never talk about the gospel. It's possible to have a Bible teaching ministry and fail to get to Jesus. It's possible to have a Bible teaching ministry that is more about law than it is about grace. Now, I don't say it's possible to have a good Bible teaching ministry and not do those things, right? But you know it's possible, You've heard preachers that are all about what we need to do and never actually talk about what Jesus has done. Or, or preaching that gets into the nitty-gritty details of theology but fails to offer the free gift of grace. There are lots of ways we can get it wrong. Uh, but what we need more than anything is Jesus. The goal is not eloquence, it's not excitement, it's not entertainment. The goal is the gospel, right? Knowing and loving and living and communicating grace. So pastors, first and foremost, must, must teach the gospel. Second, pastors must guard the flock. Here's the way, there, there's a certain kind of talk that begins like this, right? There's a boogeyman in the closet, Right? There's, there's a boogeyman in the closet, and, and if, you, if you vote for my party, or if you buy my product, or if you follow my seven steps, right, then you'll be safe. And I think we begin to tune those messages out, right, because we know there's no boogeyman in the closet. Right? They're just trying to get us to buy their product or vote for their party or, or whatever. We know there's no boogeyman, and so we begin to think that there's actually no danger. Right? We begin to get comfortable. But the truth is, without sounding alarmist, without trying to sound alarmist, right, there is a danger. Paul says in verse 28, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, that's an important qualification, right? The shepherd shepherds the flock. Um, God has given oversight of the church, his church, the church that he purchased by the blood of Jesus. 
He entrusted that to pastors, to elders, to overseers, to care for the church of God. And those pastors must pay careful attention to two things. Notice, they must pay, pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock. And both are important, right? If my spiritual life begins to go downhill, that will affect my shepherding. I can't call you to have a vital relationship with Jesus if mine is floundering. Right? It'll be obviously empty and fake. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, the elder must keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching both. Pay careful attention to yourselves, Paul said. We can't presume we're all good. And yet there's more. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? What, what's, the, what's the big deal? Well, Paul tells us the big deal in verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And see, Paul says there are two, two dangers that are coming. One is fierce wolves from the outside. And the second is false teachers rising up from the inside. And here's the point, right? There, there, is, there is this danger, this danger of lies, this danger of deceit, this danger of false teaching. Now, we don't tend to, tend to think of, of lies as a danger, but it, it is. They are. There, there are lies that will destroy your soul. In fact, uh, that's all it took in the beginning. You remember? Uh, Satan's first attack was a lie. In fact, it was a series of half-truths and questions. There are always lies out there that, that will kill your faith, that will destroy your soul. There are always lies out there that will, that will, that will crush you. Right? I mean, think about some of the lies our, our culture tells us. Culture says of Christians, we're just, a, we're just a bunch of judgmental hypocrites, after all. None of us actually does what we say we should do. And so we, we should all be able to live our lives as we please. Right? Just obey your thirst and have it your way. It's all up to you. Of course, the culture tells us the opposite message as well. It says, it says you need to be prettier and you need to work harder and you need to earn more. So on the one hand, they say, oh, it's all up to you, you know, just, just obey your, yourself. And on the other hand, it says, you need to conform. You need to get better. You need to be more the way we tell you you need to be. Christians have versions of both of those lies, don't we? Uh, on the one hand, we say grace is everything. It doesn't matter how you live. Just follow your heart. And on the other hand, we say God is holy. We must obey him. If we want to draw near, right, follow these rules and everything will be okay. Just do these five things and you'll be good. See, both the church and the world put us on this roller coaster, right? Between giving ourselves over to the broken desires of our hearts and some autonomous dream, and then having to conform, to live up, to muscle up and be something we're not. And of course, it's exhausting, right? I mean, hedonism never satisfies and conformity ends up killing us. But they're lies, right? Wolves from the outside seeking to chew us up, false teachers from the inside leading us astray, half-truths twisted to pierce our hearts and draw us away from our first love. Therefore, Paul says, be alert in verse 31. The elder shepherd must be constant in admonishment, he says. Uh, that, that word means that Paul was not simply in his teaching, he was not simply seeking to inform the mind. 
He was seeking to inflame the heart and to engage the will. The pastor's teaching must, must not be just information transfer. There's warning involved. There are dangers ahead. Dangerous lies as well as dangerous lifestyles. And so Paul admonished the church day and night, he says. I think that part is hard for me. Uh, I'm much more comfortable in a classroom. When it comes to admonishment, I feel ill-equipped, a little timid. But for Paul, it, it was a necessary part of protecting the flock from wolves. The imagery Paul alludes to a few times in this passage is that of the watchman in Ezekiel. We read about it earlier in the scripture reading. God commissions Ezekiel to be a watchman in Israel. And the watchman was one who sat on the city wall, keeping watch, ready to warn the citizens within if danger approached. Ezekiel, of course, wasn't a physical watchman, but a spiritual one. He was to warn the people of spiritual dangers when the people turned from God to idols. In fact, it's the, the word for watchman in the Septuagint of Ezekiel is actually related to the word for overseer here in the book of Acts. The pastor elder must be alert to spiritual dangers to be ready to warn the flock when the wolves are near or when a sheep begins to stray from the pen. So the pastor elder must teach the gospel and guard the flock and third, accept opposition. I don't know if accept is the right word, but it's the word I've gone with. Uh, teach and guard are, are two of the key roles of shepherd elders. This next point is not really so much a role as a resolution. Paul faced opposition. Verse 19 says that he served the Lord with trials. The, the, the Jews plotted against him. And of course, we know, as we've read through Acts, uh, even the Gentiles at times caused riots and brought him up on charges. Verses 22 to 23 say that as Paul heads to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, at the same time, the Spirit warns him of coming danger. And you can just imagine a prophet after prophet in the church, town after town that Paul goes to, they warn Paul that prison is coming, danger, afflictions, trials. Now, I think if we're honest, for most of us, if we knew that, that prison and affliction were the inevitable result of a certain course of action, right, most of us would avoid it. <laughs> Nobody wants trouble. Okay, sometimes it seems like there are people who are looking for trouble, but, but most of us don't simply want pain in prison. Of course, Paul didn't want pain in prison either. Neither, though, does he avoid it. Rather, Paul says in verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only am I, I may, may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. What? I mean, Paul, you've lost your mind. No. Uh, Paul just knows something that we need to learn, that if anyone wishes to save his life, he will lose it. In order to find your life, you must realize there is something of more value. Why was Paul so intent on finishing his course and running his race? Because Paul's great desire was to know Christ. 
There's that great passage in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, why was Paul so ready to not count his life of any value? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You know, when you were four years old and you found a penny, it was so precious, right? It was so valuable. You'd carried it around and you showed it to everybody, right? Look at what I found. I found this penny. Or somebody gave me this penny, even better. And then you live a few years and you learn the value of a dollar, and, uh, and then you live a few more years and a few more, and your perspective on that penny changes. The penny's still worth a penny, but you realize that that, that value is relative. Why does Paul count everything as loss? Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. See, we are too easily satisfied with the pennies of this life. We set our sights too low. It's that, it's that great uh, Lewis passage in, in uh, one of his works. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, this is what Paul means when he said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. He's saying, why should I be so concerned about my life when Christ is to be had? Do I prefer my life to Christ? No, Paul says. I want Christ. And you see, this, this is the way we must face opposition. Pastors and elders must face opposition, not because they are masochists, but because they delight in Christ more than comfort or ease. You know, and as we serve Christ, whoever we are, this is going to be true of all of us, right? Opposition is bound to come. And there is a sense in which if we, if we run from it, we run from Christ. See, to stop serving Jesus because of the dangers it brings is an attempt to save my life, which means in the end I lose it. To stop serving Jesus because of the dangers it brings is actually more dangerous. But if you keep serving for Christ's sake, we find our life in Him. That's what Jesus said. And yet there's another reason. There's another reason that Paul did not shrink back from opposition. Not only did he want to know Christ, but this brings us to the fourth aspect of the elder's role. Paul loved the church. Paul loved the church. I want you to notice this, both because it's so interesting and because it's easy to miss. There are lots of tears in this passage. Verse 19 says, Paul served the Lord in Ephesus with tears. Verse 31 says, Paul says he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
Finally, in verses 37 to 38, we're told there was much weeping and sorrow as Paul got ready to leave. Why, why so many tears? Why is this so important? Uh, Paul is essentially a traveling teacher, right? He's, he's moving from place to place. He's a missionary. He's going from, from one city to the next. The longest he stayed anywhere was his three years in Ephesus. And so you might think because Paul moved from place to place, he just he didn't get involved. Right? Sometimes we think that when we're going to live someplace for a short period of time. We're like, ah, I don't want to get too attached because right? then I'm going to leave and I'm going to be sad and I don't, I don't want that. So I'm not going to get involved. But nothing could be further from the truth for Paul. Listen to Paul's words to the Thessalonian church. He said, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. To the Corinthians, Paul said, our heart is wide open. And again, he said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul considered himself like a father to his churches. He constantly prayed for them and thanked God for them. He said of the Philippians, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul was no cold teacher. He was no stone-faced disciplinarian. He was no sour-faced pastor, right? He loved his people. He wept over them. He prayed for them. He longed to see them. And so he gave himself for them. Right? Th this is love. Uh, Paul mentioned how hard he worked in verses 33 to 35. He, he did this uh, to help the weak, he says. And because Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And of course, Jesus should know. Right? He, he gave his life on the cross. He modeled what love looks like. Love looks like death. To love another is to die to self. And for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That's, that's probably one of the greatest paradoxes of life. Right? That if you want joy, love like death. Now, not all love like death brings joy, right? Sometimes we just get bitter. So we serve people tirelessly. We see no fruit or, or it, they never thank us, right? We just, we just get bitter and tired. We don't love with tears. We, we love through gritted teeth. I know I do sometimes. Why do we love through gritted teeth? Because we count our life of great value and we lose our life when we love, right? Loving is expending your life for the sake of another. And if I value my life, that's just going to get on my nerves. See, we cannot love like Jesus until we know the surpassing value of Jesus. Loving like Jesus will not bring joy until we want to know nothing except Christ. Until we're ready to give up our lives to know him. See, how can loving like death be a delight when our desire is to know nothing but Christ and to share in his sufferings, as Paul said, and to become like him in his death. Right? When I want to become like Christ so much that I'm ready to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, then loving like death will be a joy. Elders must teach the gospel, guard the flock, face opposition, love the church. And fifth, they, they must answer to God. Uh, this is by far my least favorite point in today's sermon. Maybe a close tie with the last one. 
In a moment, I'll quote my scariest verse as well. But, you know, if the role of pastors is to teach the gospel, to guard the flock, to face opposition, to love the church like death, if this is their God-given role, they will have to answer to God for the work that they do. Elder pastors are, after all, stewards. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Elders are accountable to God for their ministry. Where do we see that? Well, look at verses 26 and 27 in our passage. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Again, Paul here echoes Ezekiel's call to be a watchman. In that passage, God says, uh, basically, if Ezekiel warns the people and they don't listen, well, that's on them. But if Ezekiel doesn't warn the people and they don't turn from their sin, then they will die in their sin and, God says, their blood I will require from your hand. God says, Ezekiel, you are a watchman of Israel. If you don't warn them and they die in their sin, that is a kind of negligent homicide. Their blood I will require from your hand. Now, of course, Paul says that the opposite in verse 26. He says, I am innocent of, of the blood of all. Why was Paul innocent? Well, because of verse 27. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I, I was a faithful watchman. I declared to you the word of God. I warned you of sin. I proclaimed to you Jesus. I called you to God's grace. Paul's saying, I fulfilled my calling. I played the watchman. Therefore, I am innocent of the blood of all. And of course, that same responsi responsibility is laid at the feet of church leaders today. It's, it's the scariest verse in the Bible to me. I think we all have verses in the Bible that scare us, right? Sometimes it's because I'm not really sure what it means, and that's pretty scary. Sometimes it's because I know what it means, and that's really scary. The verse that frightens me more than any other, I think, is Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Elders, shepherds, pastors have to give an account. To whom? To God. That's who we have to give an account to. He will hold us accountable for how we care for the flock. Uh, now, now, there's a sense in which, of course, we will all have to give an answer for how we lived in the body. Paul says as much. Of course, we, we believe in grace here, just so you know, just in case this is unclear at this point. No one is saved because of how he or she lives in the body. All who trust in Christ will be saved. No one will be more saved than anybody else because of the way they lived in the body. That's not the way it works, right? We're saved by faith in Christ because of his blood shed on the cross. But at the same time, God says, we will have to give an account. Elders will have to answer to God. And so without slipping into a works-based view of life, that should cause us to think twice. My father is going to call me to give an answer one day for how I treat you and how I love you and how I teach you. Now, I know I will not be able to answer with self-righteousness on that day. <laughs> but I'd like to be able to answer with, with boldness like Paul when he says in 2 Timothy, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's bold. He's bold, obviously, in the work of Christ, right? Uh, we, we approach the throne of grace with boldness because of what Christ has done for us. But he's also saying, I've, I've, I've done what God called me to do. Now, Paul would be the first to say he's the chief of sinners. He's not saying he did it perfectly. But he's saying he pursued God with the life that he was given. And so elders must teach the gospel, guard the flock, face opposition, love the church, answer to God. And sixth, I think is finally, pastors must Rest in the word. If this all seems like a bit much, you've been paying attention. Uh, it is a bit much. In fact, the Christian life is always an impossible life. It is a life you can't live with goals you can't achieve, not in your strength anyway. And if we make it something we can achieve, that, that's actually legalism. We've lowered the standard to something we can accomplish in our own strength. Christian life is something we, we can't live in ourselves. We can't attain to. And so Paul says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, if we say with Paul elsewhere, who is sufficient for these things? The answer, of course, is no one. <laughs> No one is sufficient for these things. I'm certainly not, right? The, the, your leaders in this church are not sufficient for this task. No pastor, no elder is sufficient to lead the church, which in some ways allows us to do this a little bit, right? <laughs> Paul answers his own question, though, a few verses later by saying in 2 Corinthians verse three, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so Paul commends the Ephesian elders to God and to the word of his grace, his word which is able to build us up, his word which is able to bring us our inheritance. This is where we rest in the ministry. This is where we rest in any ministry. This is where we rest as a church. This is where we rest in the Christian life, in God and the word of his grace. Now, I hope you see, right, elder or not elder, right, uh, pastor, future pastor, or never going to be a pastor. I hope you see how all of this applies to you. But I do want to give one very brief and very specific application uh, to, to non-church leaders. I guess it applies to church leaders in this way as well, but to non-church leaders, and that is this, whatever church you're in, uh, whatever church you're a part of, uh, whoever your leaders are, pray for your leaders. Pray for your current leaders. Pray for your future leaders. Pray that God would raise up leaders. Bathe us in prayer because we need it. Pray for our life. Pray for our teaching and pray that Jesus would shepherd his church through us so that his name would be praised and his power would be shown forth in our weakness. Let's pray. 
Father, we, we confess, we all confess that we come to you in weakness, that we are not sufficient for these things, whatever you've called us to. And so we need you. We need you. We need your spirit. We need you. We need your grace and your forgiveness for our failures. We need your spirit and your power for renewed strength to serve you day to day. Father, pour out your grace on us in these ways to those ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.